Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got a two-part show this week. In the first half, we're going to talk about a recent report commissioned by the United States government about artificial intelligence and talk about some of the unexamined premises for the report. In the second half, we're going to listen in on a conversation hosted by Betaworks on what can be done to repair social media. A couple of weeks ago, I read a piece published by the AI Now Institute titled Six Unexamined Premises Regarding Artificial Intelligence and National Security. The piece called into question some of the assumptions in the recent final report of the U.S. National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which made recommendations to the President and Congress. Written by Lucy Suchman, a professor and expert in the field of human-computer interaction in the domain of contemporary warfighting, the piece sought to get at some of the unspoken ideas that underpin the 16 chapters and more than 750 pages of the report. I reached out to Lucy, and she was kind enough to speak with me last week. Here she is. I'm Lucy Suchman. I'm a professor of the Anthropology of Science and Technology, uh, and I'm emerita, recently retired from Lancaster University in the UK. And my work is really at the intersections of anthropology and the field of science and technology studies. You, of course, have a a long history now in being concerned about questions to do with uh, national security and the use of artificial intelligence and weapons. I see uh, papers in your citations on everything from uh, algorithmic violence to, um, you know, questions around around the use of drones in, in warfare, the use of algorithms in warfare. So you've been on this subject for quite some time. Yes, I, I actually have been involved with this since the 1980s. I was, through a series of circumstances, I ended up doing my PhD research uh, as an anthropologist at Xerox's Palo Alto Research Center, um, starting around 1980. And this was the period of the Strategic Defense Initiative, Ronald Reagan, um, so-called Star Wars Initiative, which was the idea of a comprehensive ballistic missile shield. Uh, This was at the height of the, the Cold War, of course. Associated with that was also um, something called the Strategic Computing Initiative, which was very similar to many of the things that are going on today. Basically, the idea of incorporating AI into all aspects of of the armed forces. And my colleagues at at Xerox uh, Park, uh, particularly Severo Ornstein, who was in the computer science lab there, together we organized Computer Professionals for Social Responsibility, which was basically um, initially focused on the idea of the automation of the command and control of nuclear weapon systems. We were arguing all of the reasons that was a really bad idea. That was the the beginnings of my interest in these things. And I've I've followed them ever since. And and for me, this is, again, at the intersection of my longstanding critical engagement with uh, artificial intelligence um, and also my longstanding concern with U.S. militarism. I came of age during the Vietnam War, and that was certainly a formative experience for me. 
We've got this latest uh, effort from National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, chaired by Eric Schmidt, uh, of course, the former uh, Google executive, and then a variety of other notable individuals from across industry, uh, former staffers and for lawmakers and uh, people you know, in, in academia who have focused on these issues. Tell us a little bit about this report. So I've been following um, the, the work of the National Security Commission on AI, uh, AI as part of a, a longer term interest of mine, beginning with the founding of the Defense Innovation Board in 2016, um, which Eric Schmidt was, was the chair of that. So we had the Defense Innovation Board. Um, we had uh, the the formation of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center within the DOD and the National Security Commission on AI. And the, the, the players in these initiatives are, are very recurring. So um, Eric Schmidt is, is one of the continuities, Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan, um, who was the head of, of Project Maven, which we could talk more about, and then became the first head of the Joint um, AI Center. Uh, also, Robert Work, who is a former um, assistant secretary of defense. I would characterize him as a, a major um, technophile within the military. He was deputy secretary of defense, sorry. Uh, and this is um, very much a coalition made up of people with a strong interest in promoting the Silicon Valley as a site of, of technology innovation and research and development, and people within the military who are, I would say, captured by the idea that new technologies, and particularly artificial intelligence, are going to be able to address a series of very long-standing problems. Um, so I've been following the National Security Commission on AI, their, all of their public plenaries, and then their final report. And it was in reading this, um, well, the, the, the final report is, is 750 pages. It's very extensive. But my experience throughout this is that the issues that to me are the most fundamental are very carefully placed outside the frame of the discussion. Um, they're treated as taken for granted uh, rather than actually opened up to question. And that was what has provoked me to, to write a, a piece that I titled Six Unexamined Premises uh, of, about, around national security and artificial intelligence. Well, let's go through each of them. First one you say is national security comes through military advantage, which comes through technological or specifically AI dominance. So this is the kind of maybe fundamental core idea in this that Without AI dominance, uh, we'll lose our, our competitive advantage from a security perspective. What's wrong with that idea? In the interest of, of full disclosure, I guess I should say that as a, as a U.S. citizen, I don't feel that the, the strategy of global dominance on the part of the United States actually makes me more secure. And yet, of course, that in all of this is absolutely taken for granted, that the only way that the United States can achieve national security is through global dominance. And then of course that very quickly is mapped onto the idea of global military dominance, um, economic dominance also of course, but military dominance. And just to, to pause there for a moment, the idea that the United States is under any kind of threat or even serious competition militarily um, the U.S. spending on defense is the equivalent of the 10 next most militarized 
highly militarized countries in, in the world. As many people know, we have roughly 800 bases of operation around the world. So the U.S. isn't the overwhelming global military power to represent the United States as vulnerable in that respect, I think deserves on the immediately some, some serious question. Uh, and then we sort of shift into the relationship between military dominance and technological dominance. And those two are treated as, as very closely equivalent. Milita- military dominance relies upon dominance in the area of weapon systems and the continuous production of new, more expensive, higher tech weapon systems, which is, of course, the foundation of that, which we know so well as the military industrial complex. And then now we have this further specification of the idea that within that technological military dominance, artificial intelligence is somehow the absolute essential key to ensuring um, that the United States retains its, its, global, its global power. So all of those things, I think, need to be uh, called into question. Is militarism really the only, <laughs> the only avenue to national security, or does it, and I think there are a lot of good arguments uh, for this case, uh, make us less secure, that it's actually part of what generates the enmity that it is ostensibly created to, to, to address. And so you look at this body itself, the groups who came up with it, and you know, you've mentioned the military industrial complex. I mean, to some extent, this is sort of military industrial complex plus big tech. Um, <laughs> what, who, exactly. Who, who's on this thing and, and why is that a problem? Yeah, so, so this is um, a, a kind of reformation of the military industrial complex for the, for the contemporary moment with the idea that it's no longer industry in the sense of the traditional defense contractors, um, but now it needs to be uh, high tech and it needs to be um, in particular big tech that is really taking the lead here. And if we look at who comprises the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, and my, my second unexamined premise is the idea that the, that the NCS, NSCAI is an independent body without conflicts of interest, the members of, of the, the commission are basically current and former CEOs and other senior managers of big tech companies. So uh, we have Amazon, Google, InQtel, Microsoft, Oracle, current and former members of the defense and intelligence agencies, and senior members of universities with extensive DOD funding. So places like Caltech, CMU. Now, you know, arguably these people are on the commission because they have the, the requisite expertise but they all also have vested interest in increased funding for AI research and development. So, um, and, and in my piece uh, that I cite uh, a quote from Eric Schmidt um, at the January plenary of the commission, uh, where he was talking about the, the makeup of the commission. And he said, quote, we ended up with a representative team of America. <laughs> so again, this is something that I think needs to be challenged. And I think the fact that this commission, there, there is an enormous amount of, of self-interest here. This is not an impartial body. It begins already convinced that artificial intelligence is the, is the answer 
to everything and, and needs further investment. And then those 750 pages are basically a justification <laughs> of, of that position. You know, some of the thinking probably comes from prior works. I mean, there's folks like Bostrom, of course, who wrote uh, super intelligence and this idea that whoever gets to a super intelligence first has the ultimate and complete competitive advantage and, you know, national advantage will indisputable and impossible to conquer that nation that, that arrives at that type of supremacy. But you find that AI is not even a coherent field of, of technology development. So kind of what is AI to begin with? Uh, that's, that's such an important question. And um, interestingly, Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan himself, I was recently reading the transcript of a, a press conference that he held around the, in the, in the beginnings of the Joint um, Artificial Intelligence Center. Um, and he was asked the question by a member of the press, you know, what is, what is AI? How do you define it? And he had a very difficult time answering that. He kind of indicated, well, you know, we're still in the process of defining it. At the same time, you know, he argues that it's it's going to be ubiquitous throughout um, the, the Department of Defense. And when he's asked to, you know, offer examples, he resorts to examples like um, the recommender systems of Netflix and Amazon. If we think about those recommender systems, they they first of all, you could say, what does artificial intelligence, you know, actually have to do with the way those systems work? They're they're basically based on data analytics. Um, in each case, there's the availability of an enormous and, and continually renewed body of data on what people are watching, reading, ordering online, et cetera, that can be continually analyzed and used to create the models that then generate predictions about what a particular person might want to watch or, or read or buy or purchase next. So we have a kind of closed world generating the formatted data that are needed in order to create the models that can be used to make the predictions. And we also have a situation where the cost of error is very low. So if you get recommended something that you actually don't find interesting, um, there, <laughs> no one is, is harmed by that. Really, when even people working within our artificial intelligence acknowledge that the term AI is largely a marketing term and that the technologies involved are increasingly sophisticated techniques and, and technologies of data analysis, which in order to work require enormous amounts of, of data data that's been carefully, that's been well formatted through various um, avenues and where basically there's the possibility of generating these models, trying them out, seeing how they work and that assessment of how well they work, both the, the input and the output are thoroughly human-based. So the curation of data, the formatting of data, the training of data models, to recognize particular categories of objects, and we could talk more about that, has to be done by humans. And then the assessment of the significance um, and validity of, of what is generated also has to be assessed by humans. So really, AI is data analytics. The, the term AI is extremely mystifying, but also that mystification gives it a certain kind of uh, it makes it possible to suggest that there's something radically different and quite magical um, going on in these technologies. Even within the field of artificial intelligence, 
the ideas of Nick Bostrom and others who talk about so-called artificial general intelligence or the singularity, um, this idea that AI is going to achieve more than human capacity is highly, highly questioned by a lot of people working in the field. And most people working in the field recognize the limits of these technologies. Um, and again, we could, t- we could talk more about that. It seems quite clear to me that at least a large number of the people within the Defense Department who are on board with these initiatives uh, themselves don't really understand what the technology is, but they assume somebody else does. <laughs> and and they're, they're quite, um, again, kind of, I think, intimidated and, and mystified uh, and don't want to actually reveal <laughs> the, the limits of their own understanding of what's really going on. So one of the things I'm sure they no doubt have in mind is their position on artificial intelligence vis-a-vis China, which is, of course, the du jour enemy, seems to be the, the main concern of this report. Uh, we know that the Chinese are, are spending billions on developing the various technologies that we may lump together as AI. Why do you question that? Why do you question this idea that we're, we're in an arms race with China? Well, I think arms races are, are interesting phenomena. I mean, arms races are represented within the, the, the discourses of, about arms races as some kind of a naturally occurring phenomena. But actually, arms races are generated <laughs> through those discourses, through the, the kinds of of investments um, that they generate. And so I think the premise that we are in an arms race and even more broadly an economic race with China is a self-serving kind of of, of argument. If you are someone who wants to see uh, increasing investments in artificial intelligence or any any other technology to frame the situation as an arms race makes it imperative that that investment happens. It it makes it something that isn't a matter of choice, but a matter of necessity. And I think, again, this completely places outside the frame the question of what possibilities there might be to de-escalate this competition in the interest of, of all parties in whose interest is it that we are in such an arms race? And and I think throughout the history of the framing of our international relations in terms of arms races, that has always served the interests of those who are developing weapon systems. And basically the arms trade around the world is is very much um, served by the idea that we're in an arms race and therefore must make those investments. And that's on to your next point, isn't it? I mean, the, the idea that any limits, any threats, any vulnerabilities of our current AI capabilities are something we simply need to spend more money on. So this is a kind of government-funded commission report uh, that seems to really do the work of suggesting the government needs to spend loads more on these these issues. That's right, yeah. So So the idea that any questions uh, that arise around uh, either the, the limitations of artificial intelligence, the, the vulnerabilities of existing artificial intelligence technologies, um, rather than those questions 
giving pause uh, to the idea of further investment, they're taken as, well, of course, those limits demonstrate that we must invest more. <laughs> and so, so this, you know, this might be a good time to go back to this question of what AI is and what kind of limits matter in this context. So I was talking about the, the need for the tremendous need for, for data, training data for AI. Artificial intelligence really is based on either systems of, of categorization or statistical analysis of correlations that are identifiable within large amounts of formatted data. But if we go to the question of categorization, the kind of classic example that's offered um, for AI is if we're talking about, say, image analysis, difference between a dog and a cat, right? So we have a very strong ability to recognize th those, are, those are stable categories. Um, you know, animal taxonomies are some of the oldest taxonomies um, that we have. And these are domestic animals with which we're very familiar. So these are two very stable categories. Um, we can sort creatures into, you know, a, a set of, of images into one or the other of these two categories without having to specify exactly what it is that we are using as the basis um, for, that, for that recognition. So we can get people, humans, to do an enormous amount. And, and there are systems like Amazon's Mechanical Turk. These are sort of piecework kinds of outsourcing systems where you get people to identify images, um, sort them into different categories. We can get massive amounts of training data. And then these technologies basically translate those, you know, we have a collection of images of cats and we have a collection of images of dogs. And those are translated into mathematical uh, parameters, basically, uh, you know, the pointedness of ears. The, so so these, these images are analyzed statistically in computationally tractable ways. They really don't have anything to do with recognizing dog and dogs and cats. They have to do with running analyses over these collections of images, looking for the, the regularities in each of the categories. So, you know, there we have dogs and cats. Now try mapping that onto categories like combatants and non-combatants or terrorists and non-terrorists. These are fundamentally different kinds of categories. The, the uncertainties, the questions around how someone gets placed into one or another of those categories are profound and the consequences for the placement into one or another of those categories are literally matters of life and death. There's very little acknowledgement of those differences across the kinds of entities that are being um, so-called recognized um, by these systems. And you could argue that, well, you know, we just need more to put more money in and eventually we'll be able to stabilize the categories of combatants and non-combatants or who is a terrorist. But I don't think it works that way. In fact, um, you know, there are good arguments that it is simply uh, unfeasible, if not, you know, unethical, immoral, illegal, <laughs> to, to try to create, to automate the process of, of identifying those kinds of making those kinds of categorical identifications. And of course, we know in the history of warfare, I mean, you know, 
mistakes on identification of a signal or a target or you know an individual for that matter or the wrong assessment of, of of what's happened have often led to you know the worst possible conflagrations i mean you you know you mentioned vietnam i mean in part we got into vietnam over part misreading of you know submarine signals that's right and 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 once we get into those uh, a situation like um, Vietnam and like those that are characteristic of the contemporary so-called counterterrorism operations, we're no longer dealing with situations where there are identifiable combatants in uniform um, operating on, in designated areas. Uh, we have incredibly complex relations between the so-called insurgents and civilian populations. And we know from particularly operations of of remote warfighting through drones and the use of various kinds of surveillance-based systems for detecting what's going on at a distance, that the ratio of actually known so-called terrorists, that is people who pose an imminent threat to the United States to unknown people and people who are positively identified as civilians, the the percentage of actual identified so-called bad guys who've been killed through those operations are somewhere around 2%. So enormous numbers of people have been killed who we literally don't know who they are. Um, They might have been identified through some kind of so-called pattern of life analysis as being associated with people who are on the list of known threats to the United States. Or they may simply have been in relation to those people or in the households or, or compounds of those people. So these are very imprecise, actually, uh, forms of targeting, even though they are, they're, they're spoken about as precision weapons. Um, And, you know, I've made the argument, I actually made this argument at one of the public meetings of the Defense Innovation Board, that the language of precision mistakes the precision with which a weapon, once a designated target has been set, the precision with which that weapon will hit the target on the one hand, and the precision in the identification of who should be a target on the other. And the precision in the first sense is not in any way reflected in what's going on in the second sense. We're in a situation where more than ever, there are uncertainties around who is being identified as a target for our operations. And of course, you know, people point to previous bombing operations that have killed enormous numbers of civilians. And we can't, (laughs) uh, it's kind of, you know, would you rather be hung or shot? Neither of these, uh, we don't want either of these. But the fact that we may be killing fewer people through these operations than if we were doing carpet bombing is not an argument for continuing these operations if they are in fact violating international humanitarian law in their indiscriminate um, killing of people on the ground. Well, on that, you know, your last point is around whether autonomous weapon systems are in fact inevitable. Um, you note that the commission warns that, quote, AI will compress decision timeframes from minutes to seconds, expand the scale of attacks and demand responses that will tax the limits of human 
cognition. I mean, that's really terrifying. This idea of, <laughs> you know, being in a war that we humans can't even possibly comprehend or even respond to in, in, in time scales that allow our faulty brains to even understand it. You know, why is this one of your premises that you think is improper? Absolutely. I mean, here, you know, what we're really talking about here is, is automation and the ways in which the increasing automation of weapon systems increases the speed at which things happen and further shuts down the space that there is for deliberation uh, and for thinking of sec having second thoughts about what's going on or even making judgments about what's going on. So again, this is a case where uh, there's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. So the argument is that automation, and you know, in this case, more specifically AI, is going to, to further accelerate the speed of war fighting. Now, we might, in response to that, say, oh, okay, well, we really need to back off of these, these automation projects then. We need to do everything that we can to slow down the speed of war fighting, to create uh, multilateral agreements that will create greater space um, for negotiation, for deliberation. But instead, somehow the idea is that because automation is going to make things go faster, then we need more automation. <laughs> and you can see the sort of you know, self-fulfilling prophecy there built into that as well, and this is one of the most worrying things to me um, about the final report, is the idea, and there's an, an, another quote from the report, that the AI, quote, AI promise that a machine can perceive, decide, and act more quickly in a more complex environment with more accuracy than a human, end quote. Well, this is, we have no evidence for this. The idea that, that somehow an artificially intelligence enabled weapon system will be able to perceive, decide, and act more quickly and with more accuracy than a human. There's a lot of counter evidence to that. And, and there is growing international debate over the legality and the morality of, of autonomous weapon systems, which would be weapon systems that would actually, in which the identification of a target would be automated as well as the, the, then the subsequent use of force. The automation of target identification is the next logical step in this progressive process of automating weapon systems. And the most questionable, the most debatable, and in no way inevitable, these are matters of political will. The, there are debates going on within the United Nations and other bodies at the moment, there is an enormous amount of agreement about 130 countries now that have agreed that autonomous weapon systems, that is systems that can identify targets and automatically strike, those systems should be banned. And yet the United States is resistant to that does not support a prohibition on lethal autonomous weapon systems, wants to have the freedom to continue this process of automation uh, in spite of the fact that even by their own admission, this makes us less secure um, by leading to this, these accelerated uh, timeframes. You know, at the beginning of our conversation, you brought up Project Maven. You brought up the fact, of course, uh, that uh, this commission was 
chaired by the former Google CEO um, and the ties to the tech industry. You know, there there is a, I guess, line of argument that's going on in uh, some tech companies. And we saw Mark Zuckerberg prepared to argue that, you know, Facebook needs to carry on in its rapacious growth and effort towards scale so that it can continue to develop artificial intelligence to help make America nationally competitive. Um, but we saw tech employees, you know, certainly pushing back uh, when that work was associated with defense interests, uh, in particular at Google. Um, what do you sort of see as the, the future of this? I mean, uh, you know, the activism around it, things like the campaign to stop killer robots, NGOs, the, the government work that you're talking about, uh, but then also tech employees themselves. Yeah, I think it's tremendously important. And I think that the growing um, voice of, of tech workers in these areas and in a lot of areas is, is absolutely crucial. And interestingly, I mean, in the case of Project Maven, this was Project Maven uh, is, is a project to automate uh, the analysis of full motion video from surveillance drones uh, to identify objects on, well, it's, it's always a reference to objects on the ground, but of course those objects are uh, vehicles, buildings, um, and, and people. Uh, so again, the problem is that there is way more surveillance data in the form of full, ver- full motion video than any humans can possibly analyze and translate into so-called actionable intelligence. And so Project Maven is a project to um, automate the analysis of that video footage. The Google employees who discovered that technologies that they were working on uh, were going to be the basis for that system then uh, objected that that was not um, anything that they had signed up for and that they had no confidence that that those technologies could be used in a way that was that was you know legally and and morally and ethically sound and their pushback was sufficient that google then withdrew uh, from the project and this really i think shook up there there was a kind of dismissal of this um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was clear that it really kind of shook people up in in the DOD, um, including um, Shanahan, who was the the head of that project. And, you know, it led to things to a wave of of ethics, um, (laughs) the development of ethics guidelines. Google developed its own ethics guidelines. The Defense Innovation Board was then charged with developing um, ethical guidelines for the DOD. And so, you can see the effects of, of these actions. Um, and I think they're tremendously important. And there's a lot of power in the hands of the people who actually work in these companies. Are you optimistic on these issues in the long term? <laughs> well, you know, it, it is easy to feel overwhelmed because we know just from the history of the of the military industrial complex in the United States since, you know, the middle of, of the last century, that this is an incredibly deeply entrenched and uh, and degree of vested interest in the perpetuation of all of the things that frame um, the National Security Commission on AI report is very deep and uh, very hard to uh, undo. I think that we have to keep trying to call out again, you know, this is to me why it's so important to expand the frame of the discussion, call out the things that are being 
treated as if they were unquestionable and open them up to question and open up alternative spaces for thinking about what other kinds of, what alternatives there could be to a national security strategy based in US military and technology, technological dominance. So, you know, what possibilities there could be for greater investment in, in international diplomacy, in humanitarian aid, in, in fundamentally different ways of thinking about our security, for, about US security. Um, and there, there are people doing great work on this, um, people like Andrew Basevich, who is the president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, does wonderful work on rethinking how U.S. foreign policy, uh, what, it, what it could look like. Philip Alston, um, former United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extrajudicial Summary and Arbitrary Executions, um, again, these are people who are uh, able to alternatives to, to that could look like. And, and they're also very good. There's very good critical work going on around artificial intelligence. Um, it, as with all such efforts at, at social change, um, one has to have faith that small steps are crucial, even if they sometimes feels as though it's, it's an overwhelming transformation to try to, to, to achieve. Well, Lucy, thank you for this piece, and thank you for talking to me today. You're very welcome. Next up, we listen in on a panel discussion hosted April 5th by BetaLab, a BetaWorks program that invests in solutions to problems on the internet. The panel is focused on how we build a better social media future, from the people to the product and design. Each of the speakers in this event was featured in a report on improving social media from All Tech is Human, an organization committed to building the responsible tech pipeline by making it more diverse, multidisciplinary, and aligned with the public interest. The speakers include David Ryan Polgar, a responsible tech advocate and founder of All Tech is Human, Nicole Chi, a civic technologist and product manager who's worked at the intersection of product, policy, and public interest, and who participated in Mozilla's Fix the Internet incubator with platformabuse.org, Rana Sarkar, who was appointed by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau as Consul General of Canada in San Francisco and Silicon Valley in 2017, and the session is moderated by Yael Eisenstadt, researcher in residence at Beta Lab and now a Future of Democracy fellow at Bergruen Institute. Listeners of this podcast will certainly recognize her voice as she has been a host and moderator for a handful of episodes now. Here's Yael. So hopefully you've all, people who are watching, have seen the report. But the long title, just to really get to the core of it, it's Improving Social Media, the People, Organizations, and Ideas for a Better Tech Future. Set the stage for us. First of all, what were you trying to accomplish with this report? And then let's get into some sort of key takeaways that you want our community to really think about as they're trying to approach a different kind of social media future. Sure. Well, I mean, one, thank you for having me here. I think we need more events like this, more gatherings like this, where we're specifically talking about ways to, to fix the internet. You know what? We need people with strange backgrounds because every background is needed, especially when you're talking about social media. 
we need more people who understand human behavior. But to the report, as you were mentioning, Improving Social Media, anybody can find that if they go to improvingsocialmedia.com, that'll take you to the direct URL where you can read this report. The primary purpose for this is that we need to move past the awareness stage. It feels like right now, there's so much discussion about there's a problem with social media. And for people like yourself and myself and everybody here and people listening, it's like, yeah, there is a major problem, but how are we going to fix it? How are we going to improve it? And I say improving because one of the things I've certainly realized with running Altex Human, I also serve on TikTok's Content Advisory Council, deal a lot with kind of ways to better social media, especially when, when we talk about issues like teens and mental well-being and things of that nature, is that there's inherent trade-offs with every social media decision you make. So one of the things that, that we're focused on with the report is that by understanding the breadth of this issue, we can start seeing what some of the inherent trade-offs are and then getting those individuals, what we refer to in Altec as human as the knowledge base, getting them involved in the process. Social media should not just be left up to technologists. I was even thinking about your own career and how you almost randomly got involved with, with Facebook, right? From an original podcast when you're talking about your CIA background. We need more stories like that because social media will benefit from the diverse disciplines, almost like an anti-disciplinary type of type of approach. So the major takeaways to come full circle with this is that we need to move past the awareness stage into the action stage. So even right now, you've done a lot of talk. Everybody's done a lot of talking about Section 230. Well, we at least need to do something, right? We need, we need to do something to move past the point where we say, is the problem Zuckerberg? Is the problem our... our old men and, and policymakers is the problem, the media that's been asleep at the wheel and just giving too much deference for social media is the problem that we need more digital citizenship. The answer is all of the above, right? We need more people involved. This is a complex social problem similar to tackling healthcare or, or crime where there's a diverse range of uh, issues. Uh, so that's the big part. And that's really the overall kind of meta narrative of the report is that we need to, to have this complex, holistic approach where we have kind of multi-stakeholders, if you will, but we need everybody involved. And that also means that we need more people who have a seat at the table. And the big part, the big shift is that people, like in this discussion, need to have an ability to affect what's happening in the business community. And right now, a lot of that is still very hard to penetrate. So I think if we, if we talk about where this report should go, it's going to go in ways that you can have the public not just in oversight, but actual involvement in the process, because at least my personal opinion, I'm viewing this as political. Everything we're talking about with social media is, is policy related. It's, it's politics, right? Inherent trade-offs. But with politics, with democracy at large, and a lot of people relate the rise of social media to uh, you know, democracy, you don't want a few decision makers, right? Democracy, you need checks and balances, you need accountability, you need transparency. That's why we're talking about these terms of accountability, transparency, fairness, equality. Those are all things we expect in our democracy and those are all things we should expect in social media. So to our audience here today, it just might not be intuitive that a diplomat would be focused specifically on technology issues. I'd love to hear two things from you, really. What, what are your key goals in the role that you're in and why has Canada created a role like yours specifically? Well, I mean, it's really, it's an interesting time to be here, obviously. I mean, I, you know, I've been here four years almost. And uh, in through that, the parabolic arc of those four years, we probably had three different textures of the conversation here about how to 
fix uh, social media slash, you know, tech culture more broadly. And the, and the first one was, it was less intrusive onto the companies. We were still in the phase of, of self-regulation. The second phase of that conversation was, as, as Ryan was, or, or David was saying, was a, about the lane formation and the, the way in which the problem was being analyzed from various angles. And, uh, and, and, the companies themselves, as you know, uh, were very late to that conversation. And so governments, in a way, stepped up belatedly. And we all are going through this kind of period of co-discovery right now. And right now, what I'm doing here and my principal role is to work with, you know, there are some other tech diplomats that have been appointed by other countries. And, you know, some of us are putting up our own hands and creating our own network arrangements within our own governments, because there's a number of facets of push and pull from within governments where the political side is actually quite alive to these ideas. And there is a, you know, significant amount of energy towards them bureaucratically. You know, we are trying at various stages, uh, you know, through competition bureaus, through uh, through through various types of privacy channels, through cyber um, uh, uh, sort of monitoring, uh, a variety of different angles of looking at the sort of tech equation, but it's not yet joined up. And so what we are all doing down here is in some ways providing a kind of a front face to and information gathering process, a insertion into the conversation to hopefully you know, insert a set of values that governments have. And I'll make a parenthetical remark in the sense that uh, the human rights discourse has been really valuable as a sort of a tool to bring governments together. And because people are familiar with that language, people understand the issue of harms, they understand, you know, the juridical uh, mechanisms around that. But uh, there are a number of other tools like that governments at multilateral levels have. And so it's, it's, you know, and we are launching and learning in some ways, we are, you know, doing this on the fly as we as we grow. And I think that we're in an extremely important moment right now where, um, the reform efforts are now coming to a legislative end. And so we are engaged on a variety of different fronts because, uh, you know, as you know, and, and the U.S. discussions obviously being led by competition, antitrust, many different actions, no silver bullet, lots of silver buckshot. And but we will the U.S. will make an action. But the Europeans um, and ourselves and others um, we're also doing, uh, uh, this is collaborative network diplomacy taking place. And uh, because it will not, any solution set will not happen without that. And so the final point I would say is that, you know, the other activity that we're doing is a really working hard to sort of, uh, uh, to, to get in with the community, quite frankly, all of the folks that are listening to this, uh, because this is going to be a, a, a ultimately a, a bottom-up effort, as uh, David was saying. Let me just come to you with one more point, because obviously building a better social media future, the regulatory and legislative landscape is going to affect that. As I said, we had a whole series already on some of these issues, but, you know, as our great neighbor to the north, what, what do you want to see the U.S. government do in this space? So do we need to do more or is there an approach maybe from Canada that we're not thinking through here? Just any anything you would love to see happen differently? I think that, you know, I think we're all coming to violent agreement in terms of what the requirements of the next period are. And some of that will be around, you know, the, the antitrust and competition aspects will start to uncode a very important aspect of this conversation, which I think, you know, was, was alluded to was the ultimate business model and the incentives behind the business models. And by creating more guideposts and, and regulation around um, who can compete, transparency around 
the nature of the algorithms, the nature of the competition, all of those um, pieces that sort of come into the regulatory buckets that will come out of a competition process, or uh, it will come out of a, an antitrust um, uh, action. It will also come out of the FCC. Um, and uh, But we're also seeing a, a lot of collaboration amongst like-minded uh, countries, quite frankly. And so everyone is doing this in parallel. So it's not the US government needs to necessarily lead this for the entire world. And the thing I would say, um, on that is that um, uh, one of the things that we're always conscious of is, you know, to have the global perspective versus, you know, we could fall into an Anglo-American sort of like a mid-Atlantic sort of hole on these uh, on these uh, topics. And how do we keep, you know, not just the global south, but just like all the other voices that are regulating in this space or thinking in this space, how can we get them to the table? It's a, it's a big concern of ours. Great. So I want to bring in Nicole now. Uh, Nicole, I loved reading your interview in the report, in uh, the All Tech is Human report, because you were super thoughtful on all of these issues like business models and, and competition. But you're actually like you're out there. You're trying to build something to help move this forward. So I want to start with a little bit of a broader question for you first, and then we'll drill in. Um, maybe you can tell us a bit about Mobius Project PlatformAbuse.org and really what was it that made you decide that this was really where you wanted to put your efforts? Sure, and thanks for inviting me, Isle. So Mobius Project uh, was created because I, we were seeing a gap in terms of organizations that were working to support product teams, just building everyday tools, the newest technologies for the public. There were a lot of solutions that targeted consumers, but not really a lot of solutions that were actually looking at those product teams and thinking about how can we better support them in doing responsible tech and in, in conducting a lot of our early user interviews with these product teams, they mentioned that there's, there's quite a big gap between frameworks and practice, right? So there's a lot of responsible tech guidelines, there's ethics principles, and uh, you know you can create value statements or a set of values for your product organization. But what does it mean to actually implement those in your day-to-day -day work? Uh, and a lot of product teams are struggling with that piece. So we created platformabuse.org as an answer uh, to the concerns that we were hearing from product teams. And essentially what it is, is a centralized knowledge source of technological harms and mitigations to guide safer product development. So uh, if you are a new social media platform that's thinking of implementing the downvote button for your content, you can enter in the feature, which is the downvote button, and it'll tell you what are the harms that are associated with this feature, who um, in terms of affected audiences have, has been harmed in the past by this feature, and what are some of the mitigations that other organizations or academia um, or other thinkers have come up with to address the harm that's caused by that feature. I think since then, we've actually, in, in launching our MVP through the Mozilla Builders Accelerator and then getting more customer feedback, we've realized that there's another piece of the puzzle that we, we need to solve, which is even if we give this tool to product teams, a lot of the challenges they're facing is also how to communicate the importance of harm mitigation to their entire product organization and to their management, right? So a lot of product managers will were telling us like, you know, we love this tool, 
we use it, it seems helpful. Um, the framework is really useful for us, but how do I tell my manager when it isn't actually directly tied to my own performance incentives? Uh, and so what we're working on now as kind of a service or a piece of research that's meant to supplement the tool is a abusability testing framework with the idea that you know, there's human-centered design frameworks, there's lean startup methodologies, all of these frameworks have created something really, really important in helping product teams operationalize a set of concepts and values. Uh, but there doesn't really exist one for responsible tech, at least that we've seen that's worked effectively. And so how do we kind of again, bridge the gap between values and practice uh, through a framework that operationalizes these values um, in a way that's easy to follow, in a way that whether you're creating a new product or just evaluating your existing one, you can take pieces of it and work through tabletop exercises with your team and really work on that changing hearts and minds part of the business um, that'll then lead you to be able to use tools like platformabuse.org more effectively. So I'm just curious with this in mind, you know, do you think it's possible to build and scale a social media company that truly serves the public? Like, what would you love to see for that to happen? I mean, I think it depends on what scale we're talking about. So one of the solutions that has really inspired my imagination lately uh, is Front Porch Forum, which I don't know if you all are familiar with. Uh, it is a tool that was a social media platform that was built by Vermonters for Vermonters, created by I think this couple that just wanted to get to know their neighbors better. And as COVID hit and getting to know your neighbors and mutual aid became something that was super, super critical uh, from Porch Forum kind of build the gap uh, to be kind of a locally led social media network that mitigated a lot of the, not just harmful, but also like bad user experience related problems with uh, Facebook groups. And their statistic was like one in four people in Vermont use Front Porch Forum. That's huge, right? And it is at scale in that way, in that it's scaled very effectively in Vermont with 25% of the population using it, with a lot of value to the communities, uh, people who love it. And they're monetized. So uh, they rely on ads and I think their huge value add to advertisers is you're getting in the inboxes of a lot of local Vermonters who maybe aren't super active on other social media networks. And you can target them by location, you can target them by interest area, right? So uh, there's still a very profitable business model there, but it was really built at the community level. Uh, and I think more innovations like that are, are part of the solution. Uh, certainly regulation is another part of it. But I think also, as we're looking to Front Porch Forum and being inspired by them, the question is, how do they maintain that level of community input and dedication? Uh, is it that, you know, they have some sort of community stakeholders uh, who 
they're held accountable to and who can actually provide input into their board decision making process? Is it some sort of like shared profit incentive model? I'm not really sure what they're looking to um, in the future. And also, are they planning to scale to other states as well using the same model? So I think they do have a couple questions still outstanding, but the, the concept itself, I think is very promising. With all of that in mind, I would love to hear, do you think it's possible to have a healthy, user-centric, open social media platform that can compete with the Facebook with these, you know, financial and regulatory incentive structures that we have right now? I know that's a very large question, but you are one of the most optimistic, hopeful people I know in this space. So I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, you know, I, I recently was driving through rural Connecticut and I drove past the tort museum. And yes, there is a tort museum uh, based on, I think uh, Ralph Nader grew up in the area. So they made this tort museum a couple of years ago. And when you think about how lawsuits actually inf uh, affect in incentive structures, that's one of the benefits sometimes in a capitalistic so society, right? Is that by having a lawsuit, oftentimes you change the cold, hard math that, that business tends to, tends to take it. So I think as it stands right now, we always run into the problem, but capitalism. I feel like that should be a t-shirt that I'm gonna wear because it's, it, we always come into this issue of what well, data is valuable, right? Why do you rob a bank? Cause that's where the money is. Why do people exploit our data? Cause that's where the money is. So until you change that, until you actually make certain aspects off limits, you have a really tough time, right? Because we've been talking about ethical tech for years, but uh, but you know nobody's uh, minting DuckDuckGo's founders into billionaires, right? Instead, uh, they're still trying to kind of hustle by. So even though we know what's right or, or what's more ethical or what's more responsible, we haven't structured it in a way where they're financially rewarded. And if we look at the success of the environmental movement over the last you know 20 years in the United States, we oftentimes say you can do good by being good, right? We've aligned to, you know, you can sell fair, fair trade coffee for more money. Therefore, you can actually do well doing something that's better for workers. The same thing is going to have to happen for social media. So I'd really point to some of the great work that's being done by New Public, which just had their new public festival, formerly known as Civic Signals, co-founder Eli Pariser of Filter Bubble uh, fame. Uh, you know, they're reimagining it and they're moving away from this creative lock-in that we oftentimes have because people tend to just, uh, they, they make everything that's derivative. So right now, all social media is actually derivative over what our baseline was. Uh, so I think it's going to be a combination, even though I'm an optimistic person, I think that until we solve some of the fundamental foundational issues, then it's going to be very hard to, to, to move this. And that's going to actually be a combination of legislative action and also lawsuits. And if you look at where some lawsuits are headed, they're starting to expand on a concept of negligence, which typically has not been applied to, to social media companies, but it may be in, in the future uh, if we treat them uh, differently than we treat them now. And from all my conversations and, and even from working uh, within you know, a social media company, I see how people relate to social media companies and they don't relate to it as another business. It's not a taco stand that you say, well, you know what, I'm not going to go to this taco stand. It's affecting how we live, love, learn, even die. It affects how we form a reality. It affects who we vote for. That is a big deal. And any form of democracy would want to say you want to insert the general public to make sure that they can direct the tra their trajectory, right? So I was thinking about this earlier, that social media is effectively driving the car of our future, right? As, as humans, or, uh, you know, as a democratic society. Therefore, 
it, it behooves us to make sure that we're, we're driving the car with them or that we're, you know, that, that we're a co-driver in some respect. And that's not going to be easy because that's not typically how we think of uh, private business. But if you look at utilities and, and anytime a business generates a, a significant amount of power, uh, usually through our political process, we do create inroads to have greater oversight and greater kind of injection of the, the public's will. And that's the, the biggest thing. Yeah. We have this question here about what role should public ownership play in this more democratic, transparent, responsible social media landscape? This is a big question, but and is it politically conceivable given this whole surveillance economy and how profitable it is? Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting how there's always been the hashtag delete Facebook campaign for a couple of years, but then recently you had the uh, stop hate for profit with the ADL and other groups behind it. And you saw how successful that was. And I think that really showcased that, that oftentimes social media platforms are ad-based models that, that have the byproduct of, of conversation as opposed to the reverse. So to go to your earlier question, until we kind of reverse that, until we make it where it's a communication platform that comes up with, with a way to make it sustainable, therein lies a lot of the rub. But what we also looked at in the report is that people don't actually agree about what a, a ideal social media future looks like. So you, you have certain people who are you know, on this conversation today uh, you know, in the audience who are going to say, well, wait, maybe we should move more towards ownership of data and sell it, you know, on the, kind of like the, the crypto model on blockchain. Uh, and you have a lot of people kind of pushing that. You also have people pushing more towards a private, like telegraph type of model. And then you have some people saying it should be more regulated and other people less regulated, like parlor. So I think until we have this kind of moment where we can survey the average American to say, we have to make a decision here. But again, just like healthcare, there's trade-offs. We have to decide what does our ideal social media future look like? And I think most people right now are, are saying that we want social media companies to exercise a certain level of power in order to, to decrease misinformation, especially after January 6th attack, decrease hateful uh, misinformation, disinformation that leads to real world violence and political you know, turmoil. Uh, so I think that's going to be the key part. But the issue that, that I always come back to is we want social media companies to assert the power but in order to assert the power, they need to have the kind of moral authority. Our political bodies have that because we can vote people in and out of office. Our social media leaders don't necessarily have that, and especially if you look at Facebook that has the two classes of share with Zuckerberg, right? So we need to solve that problem because we, we basically need to give social media platforms the ability to, to kind of push us in a better direction, especially on misinformation and hate speech right now but they also need to have the correct oversight, transparency, and accountability that we would expect in any type of democratic uh, institution. I wanna to go to Nicole a bit on this one, but I recognize that some of this question might be a little bit out of your scope. I'm curious, I don't know how much fundraising you've had to do for your company, but do you have thoughts on sort of how, this is also a lot what we talk about at Beta Lab because they are actually funding some of these companies. I'd love to hear your perspective on that, Nicole. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I've done a bit of fundraising. Unfortunately, you're right in that I think a lot of funders haven't really kept up with this new wave of entrepreneurs who want to fix the internet and the fact that how we think about scale, how we think about what a what good social interactions look like on platforms is different. I think advice that I would give is 
one that we need new entrepreneurs to do what is due diligence for the stage that they're in um, when it comes to tackling platform abuse. So when pitching to investors, right, maybe you're not necessarily saying like, we're going to solve every single horrible thing that's wrong with social media, like misinformation and harassment and all these pieces. But what are the steps we're already taking that show that we will mitigate those risks down the line? So maybe you don't necessarily need a fully built out content content moderation team from day one, but you do need community guidelines, right? You do need an understanding of which features you're building will lead to problems down the line. I think when I was in Zilla, if it's fixed the internet accelerator, a lot of companies weren't even thinking about these early stage questions. And so we just need at least like the bare minimum for now. And also maybe even looking at some of the more recent social media platforms that have kind of counteracted some of the, what we would traditionally think of as like scale-based company. I'm thinking of Clubhouse in particular. I think Clubhouse shows that you don't need to scale immediately, right? That limiting access can even drive up hype um, for a social media platform. And so how do we build the next Clubhouse that really focuses on user safety, but says in order to deliver this user safety, we're only releasing to this small group for now, and then we'll scale in a responsible way, in a way that keeps where our content moderation efforts can actually keep up. What can the U.S. learn? You know, what can we leverage or benefit from taking input from other countries? Where are there low-hanging fruit things that will help most as soon as possible? If I were to put on my kind of pre-diplomat investor sort of participant uh, hat and uh, inside companies hat, what I would say is that I think that we're actually at a really exciting place to create the next uh, sort of social media company set coming out right now. Because I think that, we, you know, if, if big social media is at the utility phase right now of their existence and there's pressure from the top down, but also from the bottom up, these, there's a thousand flowers blooming in terms of folks that are thinking about, and uh, David mentioned blockchain, but I think that the energy of thought about an alternative funding mechanism and an alternative business model is really coming from the blockchain community, tokening various types of, uh, you know, in trading that really provide an alternative option. And so for the first time in probably well over a decade, venture funders are looking at funding social media entities. And if you think about like all of them, and the ones that are doing it are really interesting. And if you think about Folks like Greg Eisenberg, who's at Late Checkout, just a brand new fund that's starting out of New York that is really looking at these intentional communities and how to back intentional communities. And so there's a, an amazing amount of entrepreneurial activity that's sort of going towards the space. So I think that, you know, if anything, this is a time for optimism about the flowering of things that would, that would have been unfundable or even subscale and very intentional designed uh, from the beginning. On the issue of what folks could learn in the US from the regulatory model, I think that, you know, this is a conversation that's actually been quite close back and forth. You know, there's often a, a big distance uh, sort of between Europe, for instance, and the, the, you know, three or four years ago, a very hard law perspective towards uh, uh, media companies. There's a defensive reaction in the United States towards that. But if you actually look at, you know, the, the impetus behind GDPR, 
in Europe and a lot of the you know takedown requirements that France had put up, for instance, uh, two years ago that were causing hackles. Many of those have actually been adopted into practice quite un uncontroversially, in fact. I think that the US, you know, part of this is that to take a perspective that is international from the beginning and look to corral your key allies, because um, this is going to be, you know, something which, you know, we're obviously in a geoeconomic and geopolitical moment where we have authoritarians on one side and we have everyone else and the everybody else needs to start to uh, come together. Uh, and, and I think that those conversations have already started. And uh, so I, I think that there's a, a lot of co-learning that we, we need to be doing. Um, but equally, I think that we, we also need to think beyond um, uh, governments on a regulatory side. We need to start engaging significantly and laterally with the broader network, everybody on this, this call and, and elsewhere. And so I think that you're seeing that form of activity happen as well, which is not as uh, you know, you'll, you'll remember, it's not native to government to do that. And uh, so these are, these are big exercises in building co-literacy on, on all sides here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move into what I think is an incredibly important question. How are we tackling this issue from a critical race and intersectional lens? Further, according to Pew Research, Black and Latinx are the largest populations of users on social media platforms, and they also endure the most online harm. Yeah, I always think it's important that obviously we're always trying to, to be more empathetic as individuals, but that can only go so far. You need different people uh, at the at the seat of the table and you need to expand that that proverbial table, right? It's like I try to kind of empathize with my wife at what, what it's like to be, let's say, a female, but, but I'm not a female, right? So therefore, I don't have that lived experience. And I think that's one of the inherent flaws of even the growth of the web. And they always talked about how, you know, it's now what, 31 years old with, with Tim Berners-Lee. And there was a certain self-selection bias because you had a very academic community that were very homogenous who were attracted to the early web. And that's something that we need to start thinking about is that the self-selection bias can really get in the way of understanding what, what some of the harms would be. And then take that to something like, like Twitter that early on might not have realized the, the harms that the, the community was feeling because the people making those decisions were not the individuals being harmed. And that's why with one of my earlier questions, I, I kind of posed the idea that we need to have the public involved. We don't know what that's going to look like yet, but if we look, you know, a couple of years down the road, I really think that there's going to actually have to be some almost public kind of forum or like public boards that are set up to actually understand who these individuals are. And it's also, uh, you know, kind of reminds me of one of the things I'm trying to push for is that the way we frame it is usually a company and users, but we're not users of social media. We're more akin to citizens in some respect, right? Because we're influencing the overall information ecosystem. We're being affected by it. We're affecting other people. We're not a user that buys a hammer and then uses, uses it to, to do something, right? And unfortunately, that's the way we still think about it. We still call people, you know, like we talk about UX, we talk about user experience. That's not the way we're going to be framing this two years down the road, because it's not about user experience. We're talking about society, right? So fully kind of answer that question. Yes, we need those impacted communities to actually voice what is happening, because no person who is not a part of that community can adequately 
assume what those risks are. And I will say it reminds me that today uh, is a release on Netflix of a movie called Coded Bias, which actually does an amazing job, you know, of, of showcasing that these communities oftentimes don't have a pathway into the power structure. And that's a lot of what what I'm trying to do at All Tech is Human is to change the pathways to, to the power structure. And by making a more neural net between industry, uh, academia, you know, kind of the startup community and a diverse group of people, what you're doing is you're allowing those communities that are being impacted to actually have a direct pathway to say, let's affect how this is actually designed. Let's make sure that person has a seat at the table. Because oftentimes right now, it's just angry people, you know, shaking their fists at the air. That's not how democracy works. We need to create systems that allow that energy, that passion that I see daily to actually affect the design and deployment of social media. And until that happens, we're not really going to make much of a change. We're just, we're just, you know, talking about it and, and upset about it, which we should be, but we really need to change that power structure and have all the people impacted to be involved. Because again, technologists, they've had the control for too long and it's not that technologists aren't going to be there, but it's, it needs to, to add everyone because we treat this, we funnel this under tech. This is a socio-technical issue. This is a political issue. In politics, we want everybody involved. In social media, we want everybody involved, but it depends on pathways to that power structure. So I'm going to second the plug for Coded Bias. Uh, it is an incredible movie and it really highlights what I love about it is it highlights the women, the badass women who were really at the forefront, whether they were the most recognized public voices or not, they should be, but they were most of them very early on highlighting, you know, I would call them the Cassandras, right? Highlighting so many problems with AI and with tech and I'm glad they're having their moments because these women are incredible. So, so Nicole, I noticed you actually under this question wrote that you love this question. So I would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I'll try to keep it brief in the interest of time, but tech is not neutral. I think we all know this, at least on the panel. And I think there is this ego behind a lot of these fix the internet thinkers and entrepreneurs where, you know, we believe that just because we're trying to fight Facebook or be the next Facebook or pr provide some sort of um, challenge to existing systems that were not subject to the same critique, um, which I think is, is a huge fallacy. So um, I think for, for Mobius Project, the way that we're thinking about this is there are a lot of, again, frameworks, guidelines, values-driven work out there already uh, that does aim to be pretty neutral about what audiences are affected by platform abuse. Uh, and because there's already a lot of frameworks out there, our goal at platformabuse.org is to present a abusability testing framework that actually centers the folks who are most marginalized and affected. Um, so this would typically be black and brown folks, but also anyone who falls outside of the gender binary. Um, this would be sex workers. This would include all sorts of folks who we already know from extensive research that are most heavily impacted by harms, um, but that harm is not acknowledged in a lot of these um, responsible tech guidelines that kind of treat affected audiences as one cohesive group, when in fact there's a lot of nuance between that. Like a, you know, a celebrity that receives a lot of criticism on Twitter is very different from some of these marginalized folks. Uh, so 
yeah, I think that's our little way of um, contributing to this. But I also think that we need to be pushing new entrepreneurs a little bit harder um, to really consider like, how are you still being a part of the problem, even as you try to create new solutions in the space? What does ethical advertising look like in a better social media model? I'm sure all three of you have thoughts. I mean, I can always jump in because this comes up a lot. And I think this is until we actually go to the center of data and make certain parts off limits. People are always going to go where the cash cow is. And that's that's something I've talked to a lot of uh, startup founders about is they say, is I had one, uh, I was doing an event one time and, and a person asked a question and said, well, I want to do the right thing. I don't want to exploit data, but guess what? I need funding. And my funders, my investors, they're the ones asking for it. So that's why this has to be a multi-stakeholder type of approach, which we do in the report, is because unless you actually have the investor who is also saying, I expect you to be above board, right? And, and I expect that this is the baseline, you're not going to have much of much of an issue. But uh, we're obviously seeing that uh, there's a big push to, to uh, not exploit data in, into the point that it's being done right now. We just need to create better guidelines. I also think that there's there needs to be best practices from things like the Trust and Safety Professional Association that launched a couple months ago and others to actually say, here's the baseline for all social media in the future. Um, so David, I'm coming to you for the final word since we did, you know, the whole hook yes. was really this incredible report. Um, I would really just love to hear this community. How do you want us to how do you want people to engage with the report? Like what are you hoping people will do and how will they engage with it and how can they continue to follow along with the work you're doing? Well, thank you. And again, a very, very uh, lovely to be here and uh, really appreciate all the work that you're doing and everyone else uh, for this community. The way I'm viewing this report, again, you can find it at improvingsocialmedia.com is that it's a start right? And that this is an iterative process. We want to put that out there to almost crowdsource ideas to say, what are we missing? How can we add to this? And therefore, we can revisit this at any other time. In addition, it seems like the Biden administration might be a lot more proactive. You see people like Tim Wu, the well-known professor from Columbia University, popularized net neutrality involved with the Biden administration. So there's a lot of potential for real activity on the social media reform front. Uh, The way I'd personally, I would want people to get involved with it is to actually let us know how this can be a tool in improving social media. So for example, this can be used by a startup, but that startup might find something and be a case study that that could be sent over and that could be expanded in a future report. You might have policymakers who are, who are looking for feedback. Guess what? We interviewed 42 people. Well, a bunch of those people can be contacted to be on working groups. That's how a lot of this stuff works. And I see that firsthand. People are always looking to know who is the knowledge base? And the one thing I always come back to, and again, maybe as, as, a, as an optimistic person, is that one thing I can't stand is when somebody says, God, you know, I wish there were more people who cared deeply about this. And I say, I am, I am involved in this day to day, and there are a ton of people. But the frustration is they feel like they don't have the ability to affect change. But once we can actually form a more cohesive community that can pr- promote knowledge sharing and collaboration, that's when real change happens because the community is there, right? There are a lot of groups doing great work. You're talking about kind of like a fix the internet program. That's what we need. We need investment in this. We need to learn from each other and we need to share that and build off the work because there's been thousands of people who are working independently. That's what needs to change. We need to come together, share resources, build off each other, 
focus on working groups, focus on legislation, focus on better products, but really it's about community. And that's everything that all humans focus on. So anybody who wants to get involved, we started up a Slack group. You can go to, go to alltechishuman.org, get in touch with us. You can email me at david at alltechishuman.org. And let's, let's take it from there because we need everybody. So anybody should be involved because everybody's being, everybody's being affected by social media. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.